We're continuing on in Hebrews 11. And so, of course, let me invite you to turn to Genesis 12. We're going to be talking about Abraham this morning. And uh, actually, Hebrews 11 has a a fairly good-sized passage dealing with Abraham. We're going to take it in bits because there's some different things that are the focus. So this morning we're going to get a, a, a little bit of background onto Abraham and to who he was, where he came from. Uh, we're going to see this initial call of God upon his life and then uh, the first two points that Hebrews 11 makes about his faith. And I, I think that they're significant. So as you're there, let me just kind of give you a, 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 a large-scale picture on Abraham. Uh, his ancestors go back, like all of our ancestors actually, go back to Noah and, uh, and his sons. What's really interesting with Abraham is, yeah, you can go to the next slide there. Ah, there we go. Uh, what's interesting about Abraham is all of his ancestors going back to Noah were alive when he was born. Noah lived 950 years. Um, those, those ages within the next three or four generations begin to drop off pretty significantly. Abraham's uh, immediate ancestors, his father, grandfather, great-grandfather, lived in the 200-year range. Abraham lived 175 years. But you can imagine what it would be like being the seventh great-grandchild of this man who survived the flood, the, uh, the sixth great-grandchild of Shem. Uh, what's interesting, too, if you trace out the numbers, and these numbers are found at the, the end of, of Genesis 11, um, Shem, Shelah, and Eber all survived Abraham. Shem survived Abraham by about 70 or 80 years, I think. So you've got these extraordinary lifespans, there are various theories as to why those lifespans were long and then dropped off. Uh, quite often people suggest that, that uh, because of this massive water layer prior to the flood, that that water layer filtered out certain kinds of radiation that cause aging to progress more quickly. It could have also been an aspect of the judgment of God simply shortening the lifespan of man. We're not really sure about that. Joshua 24.2 tells us that Abraham's father, Terah, was an idol worshiper. He worshiped false gods. Abraham was not raised in a, a home that worshiped Yahweh. He was raised in a home that worshiped false gods. His grandfather and, and maybe great-grandfather or two were part of that. I think that, that that's all the more striking when you remember that, that Noah is still alive. And Shem is still alive when these men are turning their back on Yahweh. Noah and Shem had, if you will, hands-on, real-life experience with the judgment of God and the mercy of God. You can imagine if they had died 500 years before, and then eventually you've got these generations that move on and move on, and, and we forget the generations that have gone before like we do. You can imagine those descendants lapsing into idolatry. It's, it's impossible for me to imagine them lapsing into idolatry with Noah still alive, with Shem still alive, saying, what are, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and I suppose that could even be part of the shortening of the lifespan, that as those generations became 
more and more and more unfaithful to the Lord, they, they were paying a cost in the length of their life. Uh, uh, let me point out too here, since Terah is a, an idol worshiper, since his father and perhaps his grandfather were idol worshipers, isn't it clear that God doesn't need to preserve a holy line in order to raise up a man like Abraham? God did not need to preserve a sinless line in order to bring his sinless son into the world. That's part of some poor teaching on the part of of the Roman Catholic Church and others, believing that Mary was sinless, believing that Mary had sufficient righteousness to earn her own way to heaven. And she had to be born without original sin so that Jesus could be born without original sin. It makes no sense. Eventually, you have to just trace that all the way back to Noah's wife, and it doesn't work to do that. It's not necessary for God to preserve a godly heritage throughout an entire line of a family in order to have a godly man at the end. He raised Abraham up out of terrible darkness into spiritual light. He called him at the age of 75. Let's talk, too, a little bit about Abraham's wealth because that's got a significant amount to do with his life and his story. Abraham's father would have been wealthy. He would have inherited from his father. In Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is preaching, he says that Abraham was called by God when he was still in Ur. uh, And we're going to talk about that city in a little bit. Uh, and, And he and his family and his father began moving. His father, I imagine, at that point is fairly old and infirm. They begin moving and they reach a point called Haran. Now, there's two Herons. There's Abraham's brother who's named Haran. That's not the Haran we're talking about. We're talking about a location that is kind of up north of modern-day Israel at the base of the Caucasus Mountains in Turkey. They reach that point, and that's where Abraham's father died, and he receives his inheritance. His inheritance was pretty sizable, and as, as you read his story, which is found in Genesis 12 through 24, those 13 chapters, as you read his story, you, you keep seeing him increase in wealth. There's a summary in chapter 34, or chapter 24, I'm sorry, where Abraham's servant has gone up north to his family's place in Haran to find a wife for Isaac. And the servant summary in 2435 is, the Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. That's huge amount, a huge amount of wealth. If you've got this mental image of, of Abraham and Sarah being this old kind of crippled, infirm couple living in a little shaggy tent out in the middle of some place, you need to kind of wipe that out of your head. Abraham is actually a small town on the move. He's the mayor. He's the king. He's leading all of these these people. When he goes to rescue his nephew Lot uh, a dozen years or so after God originally calls him, when Lot had been kidnapped, it says that he took with him 314 trained men from his household. Abraham had 314 men born under his household. Whether he owned them outright as slaves or whether they were hired servants, we don't know. But they were trained to fight. They're kind of specially trained. This is a man of of significant status. When he goes to bury his wife, Sarah, and he's going to buy the land for her tomb, which, by the way, is the only land he ever owned in the promised land, was a grave for his wife. 
The people he's trying to buy it from say, you're a mighty prince among us. So don't think of Abraham as, as being some doddering old guy. He was a strong man. He was a wealthy man, very prosperous. Now, Genesis 12, let's just read this initial call of God upon his life, and then we'll turn to Hebrews. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who curse you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. I'm sorry, I will bless those who bless you. Did I say that? I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So in Hebrews 11, Let's look at what this basic statement is as we begin with Abraham. Fathers, we come to your word now to to study and to learn. We ask for your help in helping us to understand. We ask for your clarity. We ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us faith to believe what you want us to believe and to understand what you want us to know. And in your holy name we pray. Amen. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10, make two basic statements about Abraham. The first is that Abraham, by faith, went out. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, all of Hebrews 11 is about faith. It's about the, the faith of these men and a, and a couple of women, and then the faith of countless, nameless, faceless people uh, who have preceded us. They're the great cloud of witnesses that, that the writer of Hebrews talks about in chapter 12. So it's not just that Abraham trusted God. It's not just that he had faith. It's that his faith had a couple of remarkable aspects to it that we need to understand. The first is by faith, Abraham went out. Now, when he went out, he went out immediately. He obeyed immediately. He didn't stop to negotiate. He didn't ask for time to think about it. He didn't delay until he could bring in another harvest or make sure that his sheep had been sheared. He he didn't ask for six months or a year to get his affairs in order. He got up and he moved. It's, It's as though God said, go, and Abraham said, I'm on my way. It reminds me of Matthew when Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector, Matthew, Levi, is sitting in his tax booth and Jesus walks by and he says, follow me. 
And the scripture says he got up and followed him. When Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John, they were fishermen, professional fishermen. They had a family business. They worked for their fathers. He's there on the northern shore of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, close to Capernaum. He walks by. He sees Peter, Andrew, James, and John in their boats with their nets and says, follow me. And they leave the nets in the boats and go out to follow him. You need to understand that when the nets are in the boats, the nets are in the boats because the nets are full of fish. They go out with nets in the boat. They drop the net over the side. They bring the fish in. They, they bring the fish on board, and they go to shore, and they haul the net out, and they dump the fish out. For them to leave the nets in the boats would be like a farmer leaving the grain in the cart. The job's only partway done. But their obedience is immediate. That's what Abraham did. We, we see that Abraham obeyed blindly. We don't like that. We don't like blind faith. People will accuse us. So you just have blind faith. And, and sometimes we'll try and defend that. No, 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 it's not blind faith. Sure it is. Of course it is. You have the word of God. You have a book that you believe is, is infallible, inerrant, inspired by God, God-breathed, powerful, authoritative, and sufficient. And God has made you promises and those promises have not yet been fulfilled. You just see the little down payments. Ephesians 1 says the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment. All you see is a down payment of the faithfulness of God and the promise of God. Of course you follow him blindly. When he says you need to do this, you need to do that, he doesn't offer you something immediately in exchange. Abraham obeyed God blindly. God never told him where he was headed. It says in Genesis that he headed toward Canaan, but it doesn't say that, that he knew that Canaan was his stopping point, and he didn't know where his stopping point was. Now, if you imagine a, 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 a large curve beginning in Ur and ending up way down in Ethiopia, in, or Sudan, over in Ur, that Ur would be, uh, that's Abraham's hometown. We're going to talk about that more that's going to be in southern Iraq, just north of Kuwait, on the banks of the Euphrates River, about 200 miles south of Baghdad. At Baghdad, the Euphrates and the Tigris River come close to, together, and they create this green delta that, that during the wet season has got to be phenomenal when the rest of it is just barren desert. And Ur is down toward the southern end of that delta. It's a very lush area. It's right on the edge of the desert, but it's a very, very lush area area. You follow that curve around in what's called the Fertile Crescent, and it takes you up toward the Caucasus Mountains, toward uh, Turkey, up through northern Iraq and into Turkey, uh, and eastern and central Turkey. That's where Haran is. And then it begins to curve down, and it curves down into Syria and Lebanon and what we would call Israel, and then Egypt, and then goes down into Sudan toward Central Africa. That curve is called the Fertile Crescent, even today, if you look at a satellite map, that's green. For the most part, that's green. What's interesting is in the ancient world, this is where civilization was. In this band, this is where the big cities were. This is where education was. This is where sophistication was. With the exception of a small clump in China around Beijing. This was by far a much larger area, a much more developed area at the time of Abraham, which is... 2,000 years before Christ. 
Abraham's a merchant. Abraham's a wealthy man. Abraham living in Ur is, in a sense, living in New York. He knows where the Chicago's and the Los Angeles's and the Paris's and the London's are on that curve. This, this is a wealthy area, but he never knows where he's going. He gets up and he follows the Lord blindly. In essence, again, it's, it's like God says to Abraham, get up, grab your stuff, leave, and stop when I tell you to stop. And Abraham says, I'm on my way. Since Stephen says he left Ur and ended up in Canaan, that's a distance around that curve of about 1,200 miles. He's going with a large number of servants, animals, so many tents. He and Sarah might have been riding animals, but they're not running those animals, and most of his people are walking, and they're making perhaps 10 or 15 miles a day just because of the number of people. You've got elderly people, you've got young people. 1,200 miles at 10 or 15 miles a day is going to take months. And he's got no idea when it's going to stop. That's pretty faithful obedience. We see that Abraham obeyed exactly. It says in Genesis that he went forth as Yahweh had told him. He went out, it says in in Hebrews 8, he obeyed by going out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out with the Lord's leading every step of the way. So again, following that curve around, he finally reaches a point in Canaan where God stops him and says, this is the land. This is the land I'm going to give to your descendants. And for the first time then, we see Abraham offer a sacrifice to God. He offers a sacrifice there at Shechem. He goes down to Bethel and Ai, which are north of modern-day Jerusalem, about 10 miles. They're probably suburbs of Jerusalem now. And he offers another sacrifice there, and he calls on the name of the Lord for the first time. God called this man who was essentially an unbeliever and an idol worshiper. And it seems like over the span of this travel, Abraham builds trust and builds a relationship with his God. And then we saw that Abraham cut all ties to his family and his culture. We saw that in in Genesis. He took his wife, his nephew Lot, their possessions, and all their servants. He left his country, his relatives, and his father's house. He took everything that he possessed. He left nothing behind as a tie. He left nothing behind in, uh, in Ur that he would have to go back and get. He took everything with him. He left his country. There, there's more to your country than you, than you realize unless you've lived outside of your country or been outside of your country. Linda and I have, have been in Africa. We've been in Europe. Uh, we've been in China. We've been in Canada. So South Africa, Malawi, Zambia, England, China, Canada... The, the most disturbing experience we had was in Canada. Penny just kind of went like this. When you look like me and you're walking in Ho Hut, China, you know nothing fits. When you look like me and you're walking in Zambia next to a mud hut with a bunch of kids running around like a National Geographic article, you know you don't belong. When you're in Canada, it looks like you ought to belong, 
But there's something odd about it. I was never able to figure out why I just didn't feel like it felt right. I don't know if it was the way the streets are designed, if it was the stripes on the streets, if it's street signs. I don't know what it was. They drive on the same side of the road as we do. It wasn't that. I don't know what it was, but the whole time we were in Canada for four or five days on that bike trip, I kept feeling like just unsettled. This is not quite right. We got back into Michigan once we finally came through U.S. Customs, which is a real treat. Once we came back into U.S. Customs, they're like, and it just, it just felt right. And I don't think that my brain had some idea that I've crossed this huge, massive border thing. Because you, you, when we went into Canada and upstate New York, it was like going through a little coffee kiosk. I mean, there was no huge border thing. And the first thing we see is a McDonald's. We stopped at McDonald's. But it just, it just didn't feel right. Abraham has cut all of his ties to his family and his culture. The religion he was raised with, his music, his art, everything he knew in terms of education and values is gone. It's back there, and he's never going behind. He's never, or never going back. He would head into Egypt for a brief time, and we'll see that in, in, in the next week or two, but he spent the remaining 100 years of his life in this place that was foreign to him. So the first thing that we really see about Abram, Abraham is that he went out. By faith, he went out. Now, before we go on, I, I do want to talk about Abraham's sin and his sin nature. Uh, a, a lot of people make this casual assumption about men and women in the Bible that they were special, that they were better, they were holy, they were more spiritual, they walked around with their head in the clouds. Um, at, at one time, it was really common for artists to paint biblical figures with halos because they were so holy that they just kind of carried their own nightlights around with them. I mean, they could read any time they wanted to because they got this glowing circle up there all the time. <laughs> Abraham's no saint. Abraham's not a virtuous man. As you read the story of Abraham, you, you know that he's a sinner because you can see it. You see that he's a liar. You see that he's a coward. You see that he is uh, at times so obsessed with having a son of his own that he dismisses the promises of God and even takes matters into his own hands when God doesn't seem to be pulling his, his, his weight to bring about this child. And we know theologically that Abraham is a sinner because Romans 3.23 says, "...all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." But you don't have to read the story of Abraham and wonder where the sin is. It, it stands out like a sore thumb at times. We do the men and women of Scripture a huge disservice, and we do God himself a huge disservice when we assume that these people were special or unique. That, oh, if only I was like Abraham, God could do something with me. Well, I praise God you're not like Abraham. Men, your, your wives should praise God you're not like Abraham. Wow, that woman's pretty. Is that your wife? No, don't hurt me. Abraham did that twice. So Abraham is, is not a holy man. Abraham is not even often a good man. He was faithful by the Spirit of God. He was faithful by the same Spirit of God that makes you faithful. 
When you look at something and say, this is what I ought to do, this is right, this is good, this is true, that's the Spirit of God at work in a born-again Christian. When you look at something and say, I ought to do it, but I'm not going to, that's not the Spirit of God, that's you. But the difference between a believer and a non-believer, two things. One is a believer looks at the thing that's not good and says, before they even do it, yeah, I know I shouldn't. Nobody in the world does that. And the believer will eventually turn their back on that sin and come back and confess their sin to the Lord and long to be made clean and long to be made right. The unbeliever doesn't care about those things. So Abraham, by faith, went out, and Abraham, by faith, stayed out. Look at verses 9 and 10. By faith, again, we've got that statement. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham believed God, and Abraham obeyed God. And as a result of Abraham believing God and Abraham obeying God, he didn't get any of the promises of God fulfilled. Our our Christian world seems to be functioning today largely on this idea that if you have enough faith, God has no choice but to move. It's just a lie. God always has a choice. He always has the freedom to act as the sovereign God. God made promises to Abraham, and Abraham never saw any of those promises fulfilled, with the exception of the promise of a son. All the other promises went went unfulfilled. In fact, they went so unfulfilled, if you look in in verse 9, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. He lived as a foreigner, is the word. He lived as a foreigner in the promised land. Who was the land promised to? Him. It doesn't say he left Ur, God promised him Israel, and he spent the next hundred years living in Turkey as a stranger. It says he left Ur, God promised him Israel, he went to Israel, and it was still a foreign land. If if we don't understand that when God fulfills his promises... His fulfillment is unmistakable so that we refuse to settle for less. We end up with all sorts of grief. I had a woman say to me several years ago that if she couldn't know God through her experience, through her emotions, if she could only know God through the Bible, she didn't want to know him. What did Abraham know? He wasn't raised to believe in Yahweh. His father and his grandfathers betrayed him by raising him in an idolatrous environment. God called him, and when God called him, there's no scripture. There's nothing for Abraham to go to. It's simply God saying, you obey me, and I will do this. And Abraham said, okay has to be a work of the Spirit of God. And as Abraham goes the next hundred years, all he has to go on is God is going to make me a great nation. When did he make that promise? 50 years ago, 80 years ago, 30 years ago. 
It's 24 years before Isaac is born, or 25 years before Isaac is born. You imagine God making you the, uh, the promise that's going to make your dreams come true, and then for 25 years, nothing. And even after Isaac is born, he's waiting and waiting and waiting. I think it's really significant that when Abraham went out, he stayed out, that he didn't get tired of the wait and go back. Let me talk about Ur for a moment or two. Ur was a large, influential city in the ancient world. It's, as I said, it's located in in uh, southern Iraq, what we call Iraq, next to the Euphrates River. It's just north of Kuwait. It was a city of several thousand square acres, which for the time was massive, massive. The walls were 25 feet high and 80 feet wide. 25 feet high and 80 feet wide. Why would you have a wall 80 feet wide? Well, you can put an army on that wall. And instead of waiting for the enemy to scale the wall and drop into the city, you can be on the wall with all of your weaponry, everything that you have, fighting the enemy as he's approaching. They had various buildings incorporated into the walls. Internally, there were freestanding homes and and buildings made of brick and stone, plastered over, sometimes tall enough to be reinforced with tar and straw to, to glue them together. There were specific neighborhoods within the city for different merchant classes and different arts. As they've excavated tombs in Ur, they've discovered large amounts of silver and gold and precious stones. You you know that a culture is wealthy when they bury wealth with people. There's plenty to go around. We don't need to take it. Grandpa can have this when he goes. They've also found thousands of cuneiform documents, documents in uh, in those ancient, ancient, ancient symbols on tablets, carved on clay tablets. They mostly have to do with contracts, business records, and, and legal issues. See, Ur is New York. Ur is Chicago. Ur is a place where money is made. Ur is a place where trade happens. And they kept records. 4,000 years ago, there are people carving a contract. Just our culture is so shallow. We think that we haven't done anything like that until maybe 50 or 80, 100 years ago we started doing contracts. Stuff goes back thousands of years. These were really smart, savvy people. Can you imagine the conversation when God calls Abraham to leave there and go out in a tent for the time to come? You imagine Abraham going to his friends and family. Can you imagine Abraham going to Sarah? Sarah's come to grips with being childless. She's 65. And Abraham says, pack up, we're leaving. Where are we going? I don't know. Why are we doing this? Yahweh told me. Who's Yahweh? Can I take everything? Take everything, because you're not coming back. Sarah died in the wilderness too. And for the next hundred years, it says, he lived in tents. We see him in a tent in Genesis 12 when he's 75. We see him in a tent in Genesis 18 when he's 99. We see him in a tent when Sarah dies at the age of 127. He's 137. 
And we're told here in Hebrews 11.9 that he and Isaac and Jacob lived in tents. They lived in tents in the promised land. This is my land. This is the, the, the land God has promised to me. Yeah, but it's not yours yet. It is promised. That's for some time to come. It's not yours yet. Maybe if we could just get that idea that God has made a promise and I'm in the place where the promise will be fulfilled, but it has not yet been fulfilled. Maybe if we can learn to live with that tension. We would trust him more and have greater contentment. Why did he live like that for the next hundred years? Verse 10 tells us he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now that that sounds really kind of vague and spiritual. But remember, Ur had walls with foundations, walls 25 feet high and 80 feet wide. Ur is a city of stone and brick. And Abraham, being a merchant, being having the wealth he had, he knows what the other cities are in that curve. He knows what it means for a city to have foundations. He knows that it means it's permanent, that it's protected. He knows that it means it's secure, that it's wealthy, that it's strong. So he has set his sights on a city that God will design and that God will build, and he refuses to settle for anything less. He knows the difference. Having left Ur, when, when he comes to Haran up in Turkey, he doesn't look at Haran and say, ooh, this must be God's city. He says, no, it's no different than Ur. As he goes down and maybe sees Damascus, or he goes down into Egypt and, and he sees the cities there, he doesn't say, ooh, this is different, this must be God's city. He says, no, it's no different. And he refuses to settle for less than what God has promised If you want to put it this way, he kind of puts God on notice. You're going to have to come through because I'm not going to go anywhere else. I'm not going to settle for anything less than what you've promised. Now you're going to have to produce. So Ur was a mighty city. It was rich. It was wealthy. It was educated. It was sophisticated. But compared to the city God had promised to design and build, Ur is just no better than some smelly, shabby tent out out in the sticks. Abraham wasn't willing to settle. Lot was willing to settle. Abraham's nephew, Lot, uh, probably it was, it was the son of Abraham's brother. Abraham's brother had died in, in Ur. Abraham's nephew, Lot, is probably young enough. They've, Abraham, the older brother, takes his nephew under his wing. Nobody else is going to raise him. I'm going to raise him. Lot comes with his father's wealth, that Abraham has to govern and shepherd until Lot's a man and Lot can take it over. On this journey during this time, Lot grows to manhood, begins running his own operation, and they're both becoming so wealthy and their herds are so big that they can't stay in the same place any longer. And so Abraham says to Lot, you pick the direction you want to go, I'll go the opposite way. Lot looks down there in Canaan, down into the cities of the Jordan River Valley, the cities of the plain. And that area north of the Dead Sea is a lush area. It's another delta. It's going to remind you of Ur. It's going to be a good place to be. That's where the food is. It's where the water is. It's where all the wealthy people are. I'm going to go down there. He moves his tents close to 
the city of Sodom. And Abram goes out in the wilderness with his tents and stays in the tents. The next time we see Lot, he is now living in the city of Sodom in a house. He's no longer in a tent. And the scripture says that he's sitting in the gates of the city, which makes him a city leader. He's basically like a city councilman now. And when God brings the judgment on Sodom because of the wickedness and the homosexuality and the perversion that was there, two angels have to drag Lot out of the city. His son-in-laws, two of them, stay behind and die. They won't listen. His wife turns around as they're leaving the city and is judged by God because even though her feet were away from Sodom, her heart was back there and God said, you're going to die. Abraham's daughters ended up committing some terribly horrifically perverse acts with him. 1 Corinthians 3 says about the judgment of fire that those who uh, are judged in that way will be saved, but as though through fire, suffering the loss of all things. That's Lot. Lot suffered the loss of everything. He lost all of his property. He lost all of his wealth. He lost his, his wife. He lost his family. Abraham continues to flourish. He was willing to wait for God to fulfill his promise. He wouldn't accept the the world's petty possessions as equal to that. He didn't get tired of waiting and say, I'm so tired of waiting, I'll take something small and pretend it's what God wants to give me. The charismatic movement at large part, as certainly the prosperity movement today, could not exist if, if the people in the pews weren't willing to settle. If when they said, if you're going to raise the dead, raise the dead. If you're going to do a miracle, do a miracle like Jesus did. Don't fake something. Don't make it something that you have to imagine in your heart. Make it biblical. But people are so desperate for something that they're willing to settle for what's less, and they end up being deceived as a result. Let's bring this home. What do we apply to our lives? Well, we've got the the two lessons of Abraham's faith. His faith led to immediate obedience and lifelong contentment. Faith that doesn't bring about obedience isn't really worth having. Faith that doesn't bring about obedience is just an opinion. It's just a preference. Faith that doesn't bring about obedience doesn't change anything. God said, go And Abraham said, I'm going. And his obedience was blind obedience. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know what he would do when he got there. God had made these promises, but God didn't say, this is how I'm going to fulfill them. Here's the calendar. You can check these things off as they happen. I love getting stuff from UPS because I love watching that tracking. And like, ooh, it left. Ooh, it got here. And it's, it's here now. It's in Omaha. Oh, it's in Norfolk now. Oh, it's out for delivery. I love seeing that with, with, with God. God just said to Abraham, it's on its way. And, and 25 years later, it's finally delivered. And Abraham doesn't have a tracking program to tell him where it is in the process. And Abraham's faith led to a lifelong commitment now or contentment that's not true in every area especially in his desire for a son he struggled with that he obsessed over it but this man lived for a hundred years in tents he lived for a hundred years in the wild not in the homes he was raised in not with the kind of luxury and environment that he was raised in yet he never went back 
It seems that he never looked back. As you read his story, there are several times that he deliberately rejects life in a city, rejects wealth coming from someone else. He had the money to live anywhere he wanted, but he was content to wait in this land that had been promised to him, yet was not yet his. So are are we willing to obey what God has said now? Without negotiation, without delay, just to simply obey what God has said. That's hard. That's hard. Are we willing to be content when we have obeyed? If it was hard for Abraham to get up and leave Ur, it must have been all that much harder to stay away for the next hundred years and to never go home. And to say, God has called me out, but he has not yet delivered me in. As, as the Lord delivered Israel out of Egypt, they then spent 40 years in between. They'd been in Egypt. They were heading for the promised land. They wouldn't believe him. He stuck them in the, in the wilderness for that first generation to die. They're stuck in the middle. Jesus yields up his spirit on that Friday afternoon. It is finished. He yielded up his spirit and died. They took him and they buried him. Sunday morning is coming. We've read the book. We know Sunday morning is coming. But his disciples didn't, and they had to deal with Saturday. They knew the scripture. They knew what he had promised, but they're so stricken with grief and shock, they don't know what to do. Now, the Lord has ascended, and he has said he's coming back for us. He has gone He will come back. We're now in the promised land that is not yet ours. Are you content for the promised land that God has given you to not yet be yours and to remain faithful to him and to wait for him to bring the fulfillment? If you're content for that, I don't think that there's a life to compare. I think Abraham would say there's nothing like it. I think Lot would say, in retrospect, he wished that he hadn't settled for something that was almost but not quite completely unlike God's promise. God promised everything. Lot settled for a quick nothing. So my hope for all of us today, for myself and for you, is that we would devote ourselves to quick obedience to the Lord without negotiating with him and that we would be content to wait for the the full perfection of his purposes and not settle for counterfeits that break our hearts and dishonor him. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your kindness to us and your grace to us. This is really kind of rubber meets the road, practical life when we consider Abraham. You haven't called us to leave Ur and walk 1,200 miles You've you've called us out of the world as your people. You've given us the down payment of the Spirit, but we don't have the fullness of anything yet. We've all experienced the dissatisfaction and the discontentment of, of that not yet. We've all been tempted to look at the things around us and and out of a longing to to have the fullness of what you've promised to identify some of those things as as the fullness. And they're not. None of them are. Would you teach us, would you help us to learn, like Abraham, 
to live as foreigners in the very land that you have promised until you bring us fully into it, until you have uh, handed us the keys, until you have come here to be with us, taken us to be with you, until we have everything that you have promised. Would you teach us to not be satisfied with less so that we wouldn't dismiss you, so that we wouldn't find ourselves arguing against you, (coughs) so that we would not be vulnerable to the temptations of the enemy. We thank you for these words. We ask that you would help us to remember them and uh, contemplate them and meditate and act on them this week. And in your holy name we pray. Amen.